Thanks for taking time to listen to this episode of The Real Rescue Podcast. Take a minute to go to therealrescue.com to check out these and other great deals from our sponsors here at The Real Rescue. This episode of The Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider, Axness. Because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, clear communication is of the utmost importance. Life Saving Systems Corporation. We do our work so you can do yours. Tough gear for tough jobs. And SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. The Axness PNG Wireless ICS System can bring cutting-edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere, at any time, on any aircraft. Plus, with the strongest and most robust waterproofed handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise canceling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Axness PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircrafts worldwide. I have personally used the Axness system in four different countries and on five different airframes. It is awesome. If you want more information, contact them today at axness.com. That's A-X-N-E-S dot com. You just make sure you tell them Quinny sent me. Life Saving Systems Corporation. They manufacture the world's toughest helicopter rescue gear. From my favorite harness as a rescueman, the Triton harness, to the rescue baskets, the litters, and of course, the most popular hook in all helicopters, the D-Lock. The team at LSE will cut bend, sew, weld, and machine these products into existence every day. We do our work so you can do yours. LSC, tough gear for tough jobs. Check them out today at lifesavingsystems.com and follow them on Instagram at rescuegear. That's at R-E-S-Q-G-E-A-R. And SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help with your helicopter training, a standardization and safety check, or maybe just an audit or an FAA refresher. They are here to bring your agency up to date with the most current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. The training staff is awesome. With the certified flight instructor pilots, experienced crew members, which I am happy to say that I am one of them, they offer training in rescue, medical, tactical, firefighting, ground operations, and night vision goggle use. SR3 is also partnered with Petzl 
to assist with personal protective equipment and the highly specific Lazard. SR-3 also goes beyond the helicopter world as they provide high angle rescue training and tactical medicine training. Contact them today at sr3rescueconcepts.com or over on Instagram at sr3 underscore rescue. Our next guest coming up had an incredible career in the U.S. Navy, and I am so excited to have him on as a guest. We talked about some of his early deployments, his you know, first time in the water, and then going after some crazy stuff down in the Caribbean tour, and then Katrina and Rita and everything in between. Even though you guys don't get to hear everything in between, it was an amazing career for this guy. So please welcome our next guest, United States Navy rescue swimmer, Mr. Ken Smith. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard rescue swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Real Rescue Podcast. Today, I've got another Navy swimmer with me. Totally stoked to have this guy with us. Please welcome Mr. Ken Smith. What's up, Ken? How are you, buddy? Not bad, Jason. Glad to be here. Dude, I'm stoked you're coming on. Man, I, I said it before, but I'm going to say it again. You Navy boys, you're coming out of the woodworks right now, man. Come on. <laughs> I'm digging it. I'm yeah, digging we're all it. over the place. Yeah, we're, I think we're all over the place. I think there's more Navy rescue swimmers than there are Coast Guard rescue swimmers, so I, it might turn into like all Navy here shortly. <laughs> well, there's a lot of good stories, and I think the commonality between swimmers and both services, uh, we we just don't get nearly as many rescues in a frequent pace as you guys do, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll agree with that, but you know, I'll tell you what, some of the stories I've heard so far are amazing, and I'm looking forward to getting into some of yours too. So <laughs> it's awesome, but. I'll tell you what, man, I, let me not like delay this anymore. Please give us a little background, your name, who you are, where you're from, and how you got into the Navy. Okay. Uh, my name is Ken Smith. I joined the Navy in 1986. I grew up in Palmyra, New Jersey, and then I moved to Atlantic Beach, North Carolina. And in that area, I actually met my wife. So I, I was a young 19-year-old. I met a beautiful 26 year old that had one child and we, we were married six months later. So nice. pretty much the moment I met her, yeah, the moment I met her, I knew I had to do something to be able to take care of this family. And that place you either worked in the restaurants or on the boat. So, um, let me see the movie top gun came out. So I'm, I'm a top gun baby. Like, so oh, many people. snap. <laughs> So, uh, you know, that, that was clearly one of the motivations to join the Navy, but it was also in the wake of the, uh, of what ended up happening with Qaddafi. So, you know, you had the Qaddafi event occurred the first time and, you know, so I was feeling kind of patriotic and I joined the Navy. I went in in November of 86, um, following that. Uh, November of 86, I had an awesome, awesome recruiter. And he told me the best case scenario is the apprenticeship training program. So you get to see all the jobs and then pick the one you want. 
Um, it took me about two seconds in boot camp to realize uh, that was not reality. Not at all. Not reality. <laughs> I love it. So my company commander, he told me, he said, uh, top 10% gets an A school. About 60% had an A school. So when I walked through the door, I knew I was in trouble without one. Um, so I was top 10% and I found out uh, he was a liar. So, <laughs> so off to apprenticeship training, I went and uh, I got to apprenticeship training and a guy named 81 Prevo, wherever you are. Thank you very much. You changed my life. I was nice. top 10% and uh, I went and picked AW, which is Aviation Warfare Systems Operator. Um all I knew was I was going to fly. I, I knew nothing about rescue swimmers yet at the time. So after that happened, um, I went on to, got to Pensacola. I show up. Um, yeah, as a matter, I, I'm so, so green and so new. You know, I show up, I'm in uniform. And the uh, air crew barracks there was like, like Animal House. It, it, it really was. Uh, students were running the quarter deck, showed up on a Friday night. So you can imagine what it looked like, but there was a pool table on the quarter deck. And, you know, I'm, I'm so regimented now from boot camp. I'm like, hey, uh, you know, what do I do? He's like, ah, just come back Monday morning, 0700. I'm like, uh, can I take a shower? He's like, you could take a shower till Monday morning, 0700 if you want. <laughs> Yeah, I had to go buy civilian clothes. I didn't have anything. I, oh I had nothing gosh. at the time. So it was a, <laughs> yeah, it was a real life, you know. So then I started air crew and we were driving in a van. And I can remember we're driving in a van and I see like three guys on crutches, one guy with like his arm in a sling. And I'm like, who are those guys? And he's like, those guys were rescue swimmer students. And I'm like, really? And, you know, for some weird reason, I was like, I want some of that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, yeah. While a lot of people knew they were going to rescue swimmer school, I didn't know anything about it at the time. And, you know, if, if I'm a fair evaluation of my own ability, I was not a great, I, I never had any formal swim training, but back then at that time frame, the Navy needed swimmers so bad. Yep. So if you passed the, uh, if you passed the 500 yard, uh, yard swim, in under 11 minutes, whether you wanted to or not, you're going to SAR school. No way. So, oh. <laughs> yeah, so, so people were going to SAR school who did not want to. And other people, like in my case, I'm busting my butt to get underneath that 11 because I wanted <laughs> to go to SAR school. Oh, that's now, crazy. Yeah. The caveat at that time, which was, uh, you know, I really feel bad for a lot of people on this is, you know, they came in with a contract to fly. But if they swam fast enough and they went to SAR school, you didn't make it through SAR school then. You went to the fleet undesignated. So yeah. It, it, it was all or nothing. If you, you can't pass the school, uh, you're probably carrying chocks and chains on an aircraft carrier. Oh, man. Like, put the feet to the fire. Come on. Yeah, pretty much. So I, I got into SAR school, and uh, I, I can remember pretty much from day one. I mean, you know, we had – Zelenok, Blevins, uh, who were some of the other names I jotted down. I, I mean, just amazing guys that through the Navy, you know, if you were to turn around and take a look at these guys, they're people that, you know, everybody knows, Deaton, Donovan. 
Um, you know, some of those names are kind of known as notorious for being involved with the Marecki incident that occurred later. Right. But the reality is, is, you know, they, they were, you know, they were giants and they were legends. Um, the SAR school was phenomenal at that time. Yeah. Now you, uh, we, and at that time, you actually had a couple of Coast Guard guys with you as well, right? Because that should have um, been Coast Guard. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we did not have any in my class. At that time, um, later later on, we had a lot uh, that were coming through, but exposure to the Coast Guard when I was going through as a student, um, didn't, didn't see any of those guys right there. And then, uh, you know, SAR school was, you know, pretty uneventful for me. My wife was pregnant with my first child while I was in SAR school. Oof. And, you know, everything, kind of great shot, no rollbacks, no issues. And then I got to the day before the final multi. Yep. And uh, I'm in the pool doing multis, and uh, I had just watched. You know, this is kind of funny when you think about it. I had just watched the previous multi that a guy was on. He tried to get somebody out of the out of the raft, and he got pulled into the raft. And I remember seeing him stripped buck naked, thrown into the pool. So you know, in <laughs> my head, oh in my, my head, gosh, I'm like. Do not get pulled into the raft, you know. So oh, wait a minute. So you got pulled into the raft by the guys in the raft, stripped naked, yes. and then thrown back in the pool. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. You know what? Thank you to all my instructors for not doing that to me. I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, you know, I end up going and, you know, in my head, I'm like, do not let them pull you in the raft. Do not let them pull you in the raft. <laughs> you know, I, I was five foot eight, you know, all of a buck 35. So I weighed like next to nothing. If they ever got leveraged, there was going to be nothing I could do. So I get That's over to funny. the guy. I don't care who you are. That is pretty funny. <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. I, I get oh. over to the guy in the raft and, uh, you know, these guys are huge. And he reaches behind him, grabs the back of my SAR harness and flips me in the raft. And I'm like, no. So <laughs> I turn around, I jump, I hit him with my shoulder and I flip him into the water. So now I've got him in the water. And it's a, it's a guy named Randy Donovan, um, phenomenal human being, amazing swimmer. Uh, I'll also go ahead and say a unearthly amount of denseness to his bones and his body because he doesn't float. Um, you know, so I've got him back in the day. You took your flotation on, you put it on the survivor, you blow it up. I, I've got it totally blown up and the guy's still sinking. And I'm like, I'm kicking, I'm kicking, I'm kicking. We get over to the rescue hoist and, you know, they got the sprinklers going on and, and he's grabbed a hold of the hoist now. And I know I've got to get the strop up underneath his arms and everything. And, you know, they were always talking about use leverage. And uh, so I reach around and I grab his pinky and I'm like, let go of the hook. He's like, no, let go of the hook. And I just keep prying back. I guess I hit his pain threshold because when I did, he tried, I think he tried to use the hook to turn around and spin and face me. Instead, what he did was he went, whack. Um, and I'd already lost my mask. My mask was gone, but he hit me right over my eye. And uh, 
uh, I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, as soon as he did that, I just craned and rolled over on him and, you know, I'm holding him under trying to get a little bit of compliance. And when I do that, I'm just watching red pour into the pool. Oh, and gosh. There was, a, you know, there was an instructor, Cowan, up in the tower. And he's like, Smith, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fucking fine. Leave me alone. Because um, all I can think in my head is, you're getting rolled. You're getting rolled. Yeah. You're, you know, I have no idea how big the gash is, but it's gushing. Uh, <laughs> So about that time, I pull Donovan's head back up. He gets some air. You know, he's ready to whoop my ass. But Cowan's in the tower, and I can see Cowan doing this while yeah. I'm trying to get control of Abort. Doing Abort. He's no more. Yeah, he's You're trying done. to tell him to back it. off. Yeah. <laughs> I finally get him. We hook up. We get up into the tower. And as I'm coming in the tower, I'm like, don't roll me. Don't roll me. Don't roll me. And uh so we finished that up and they're like, hey, go see uh, the corpsman. Mm, I can't remember his name now, but he was teaching the medical class to the junior class in the classroom at the time. Okay. So I like knock on the door while he's teaching the class. I come in and my face is just covered in blood. My, my white t-shirt is, is covered in blood. And I'm like, hey, uh, can I speak to you for a minute? You know, now all these guys, they're week two guys, and they're, like, getting ready to start multi. <laughs> like, all their faces go white when they see me. They're like, holy shit. Um, so, I got lucky. This is awesome. Oh, yeah. gosh. School. He's I like, love school. Yeah. He's like, if I send you to medical, they're going to give you stitches. You're going to be wrong. So... Instead, what he ended up doing, he put butterflies on. My final multi probably wasn't as hard as some of the other guys in the class. Uh, you know, I, I'm guessing, um, you know, it certainly didn't feel easy to me, but I'm sure the instructors were like, oh, we busted that dude's eye. Let's let's not make this a case. Uh, and oh, uh, I, I graduated there. Man, so well done. <laughs> Oh gosh, I love school stories. They're so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Like everybody's got one or two of them. Man. <laughs> I can't say that I ever got hit so hard I was bleeding all over the place. So you got that one. I, I, you can have that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say so when I went through it was pre-Marecki timeline. So the end of week one, we had hell day where you went in first thing in the morning. And I think we went. Uh, you know, and, and forgive me if I ever get timelines a little off, but I, I think it was about till 830 at night. And it was just, you know, seven and a half mile run, full beat down for the whole day. So it was it was our big gut check. The other thing that I remember that really stuck out in my mind with this being the pre-Marecki phase was we had a guy in our class. I think his name was Hobbs. And when we got to doing Sharks and Daisies, which was part of our hell day it was you just swam in circles with your hands behind your back and instructors took turns jumping out of the tower doing whatever and when they hit you they would tell you what to do and you would uh make an effort to perform that maneuver wow um, i remember we had this kid named hobbs and I, I, i'm gonna go ahead and say i never saw him touch the side of the pool uh, back during that time period um, as best as I understand, and this was a little bit that I learned later when I went through uh, 
instructor training. Um, and, and, and this is how I recall it. So I could be off slightly, but you could not DOR. And this, this kind of leads to what happened later. You couldn't DOR until you completed the evolution you were on. Oh, so, interesting. So when you were doing brakes, holds and releases, there was so much pressure on the instructors to get people out the other side of the course. You know, you couldn't quit until you completed the evolution. You know, so there, you know, and this kid Hobbs, I saw him come out of the pool. I never saw him touch the side. It's kind of like a porpoise. Yeah. I saw him wrap his arms and legs around uh, equipment rack pole and he's screaming, I DOR at the top of his lungs. Guess what? Four instructors pry him off that pole, threw him back into the pool. What? Yeah. Yeah. Afterward, he deal hard, but, uh, you know, to the best of my uh, recollection, you know, there, there was no quitting in the process when, when it got the brakes, holds, and releases. Wow. Wow. Uh, it was, uh, it's amazing so, how things change and, and like, a, you know, just throughout evolution or evolution, throughout the, the, the training regime, people come in, people come out, you know, things happen. And all of a sudden you're rewriting curriculum and making it a little different than one set or another set, but trying to make it better. And at the same time, you're like, Oh, that's, that's like old school. Good. Like whooping. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I'll definitely say, I, I I don't know how great we were trained back then, but I know everybody was tough. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Take a lick it and keep on ticking. Come on. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Oh, that's funny. That's awesome. All right. So now once you get out of school, uh, you went to where? Uh, so after, after SAR school, we went to our A school where you learn, you know, in our case, we learned how to track submarines. Um, so after that, you go to your fleet replacement squadron in the Navy. And I, I went to HS1. Uh, got through there, you know, re- relatively easy, no, no, no big issues. And uh, then post that, I ended up checking into HS11, uh, Dragon Slayers, who, yeah, you know, great squadron, um, phenomenal people. We, we had a long time there with no, no chief petty officer. So uh, we had some amazing first classes that led that squadron and did the best they could, which was uh, pretty awesome. Sweet. So now what was interesting, so like I said, you and I kind of talked a little bit offline, but you, uh, the first time you entered the water was, you know, like, or deployed to the water as a rescue swimmer was not so much for a rescue, but for something else. And uh, I'm excited to hear this. So what what happened? Yeah. So what ended up happening was uh, we were in the North Atlantic. And, you know, so I don't know what the water temperature was, but it was a lot colder than 50 degrees. And uh, <laughs> yeah, basically oh, yeah. all all the all the E2s on our aircraft carrier had gone down. So we were down to one E2 left and the other was down for parts. So we had been waiting for parts and parts and parts forever to get the other one back up. Well, a cod landed on the aircraft carrier deck and while it was offloading they turned in f-14 and it blew all the mail and everything that just came on that cod a good chunk of stuff blew right over the edge into the ocean so 
we get the call and they're like, Hey Smith, you want to go for a swim? And you know, me being uh, probably 21 years old and young and not really thinking about it, not realizing how cold that water was going to be. I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, now that this is in the wake of the aircraft carrier. So, you know, again, me being young and young and not so wise, you know, I didn't really think about the fact that, you know, in between launches and recoveries, they dump the sponson and that's when all the trash goes over the side so when they start putting me in the water to look for this part that's supposed to be in a box you know there's lots of boxes around i get lowered in the water i swim from one to the next and i'm opening these boxes and it's like raw hamburger uh, i get to the next box it's like spoiled cabbage you know and oh, that's about man. the time when i when I start thinking about, you know, hey, you're in the food chain and uh, you're, you're pretty close to the bottom. Um, so, you know, I think I did that. I think I was in the water for probably 10 minutes swimming from thing to thing. And, you know, we, we never found the part or recovered the part that was that we were actually looking for. But I, I can remember, you know, by the time they hoisted me out, I, I couldn't feel my fingers. And, you know, back then we didn't have dry suits. It was just wet suits, those thick ones with the gloves that were, yep. made you like the Michelin, man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I get out, I get brought back onto the flight deck and, you know, they, you know, they got blankets and stuff for me. And I, I can remember our pilot going to the ATO, the air transfer officer, and he's like, you owe him a bottle. Um, <laughs> yeah. Next time we pull in and. You know, it was, it was kind of funny because we went straight from there down to the Caribbean and he ended up buying me a bottle in a bar, you know, so he probably paid three to four times the amount for it. And, you know, I'll say I three to four times the amount and I didn't need it, um, but I, I, I got good and toasty on that. Oh, um, that's awesome. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was pretty crazy. Um but, you know, one of the things that really struck me when I go back and I, I look at that tour is I can remember the first time I was launched for the Alert 30 in the middle of the night. And uh, that to me was a, was a very sobering experience. You know, being a rescue swimmer, everybody in the Navy is trained. You want to get that rescue. You're always waiting for the call. And, you know, we're Alert 30, so we can be in our racks. Yeah. Um, and I'm sleeping in my rack and, you know, the uh, man overboard, you know, starts going off and, you know, I, I'm out, I'm deep in sleep. And somebody wakes me up. They're like, Hey, Smith, man overboard. I'm like, okay. And I'm thinking, ah, you just must you know, I'm still laying there. Yeah. And, uh, I, I'm for <laughs> yeah. He's like, no, you're a star. And I'm like, oh shit. Um, so I turn around and, and I grab my stuff and I'm, I'm running down the O3 level. We've got the, the knee knockers, which are about, a, you know, maybe eight to 10 inches off the ground. You're going through these like hatches, you know, yeah. but I'm like at a full sprint and I get right in front of CAG, which is where the carrier air group commander is. And he steps right out in front of me while I'm in a full sprint. Oh, geez. And, you know, all, all, of, all of buck 40 of me you know, knocked him on his ass. He was way bigger than me, but he's laying on the ground. He looks up at me and I'm like, oh shit. And he's like, go get him. I'm like, Roger that. <laughs> so I run. Um, oh, that's we get awesome. to the and we're, we're probably off the deck in about 15 minutes 
Now, for, for us, this is before the days of NVGs. So it's nighttime. The seas are heavy. Um, and what had actually led to us launching, I mean, it's the North Atlantic. So anybody who knows the seas knows it's pretty tumultuous up there. But what had led to us launching was um, the flight deck was secure. And I guess one of the uh, one of the vehicles on the flight deck had not been fully chalked down well enough and chained. Okay. So they were sitting up in the tower and they, they see this vehicle go flying across the flight deck and off. So in their mind, somebody was on it. So, uh. so we get launched and, you know, I'm fired up. I'm like, I'm ready to get my first rescue. And, you know, we're flying out there and every wave crest, you know, the little white and all, all you have is a spotlight. Um, every wave, wave crest looks like it could have been a hand reaching up or yeah. somebody in the So, you know, at first five, 10 minutes, I'm excited. You know, then at 10 to 20, you know, I start thinking, man, I, I, I really hope nobody's in the water because I'm not sure we're going to see them if they are. Right, right. Uh, you know, in about 30 minutes and the third full cruise muster, they realized they had everybody and they recovered us. But, you know, that was one of those times where you went from, boy, I sure hope I get a rescue to, boy, I sure hope nobody's in the water and in trouble because, uh, you know, yeah, I, I wasn't sure we'd find them that night. Wow. And, uh, we got lucky and nobody was in the water. Man. Oh, that's, oh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I know exactly what you're talking about too. Like the, the white crest and, Oh, I think I see something. Nope. Just across the water and come yeah. over like, Oh my gosh. I know, I know yeah. exactly the feeling you're talking about. It's crazy. Dang, Absolutely. Holy cow. So, so on that tour, you know, we did a North Atlantic cruise and then we did the med IO, um, and, you know, kind of a crazy story. We had a chief there for a little bit that uh, he was so worried about sea snakes in the Indian Ocean. And there were a lot that he had declared for a little bit that we would wear full Farmer John wetsuits uh, in plane guard, you know. And, and in the middle I of the Indian Ocean. In the middle of the Indian Ocean, you know. So uh, it's, for the it, record, so everybody that doesn't know that, it's really warm down there and it's like <laughs> bath water. To wear a yes. full farmer john you're gonna you're gonna be you'll be like dehydrated and and just heat exhaustion if not heat stroke in the first 20 minutes of being in the water you're out of your mind well not even in the water though because we're flying the whole time here oh yeah you're wearing this during a three and a half hour flight and just dying i I, I don't think that lasted more than a day but that was just (laughs) complete total insanity yeah, um that's crazy and not to mention they'd have to like get you between your fingers or in some odd place because their mouths don't open that much right so right. really we were worried about nothing but uh it definitely made it a lot more interesting for a period of time for sure oh that's funny <laughs> um, but that was pretty much it for my time at hs11 right on uh you so from there you end up Go ahead. Where Where's your next spot? Um, okay. So from there, I really wanted to be a rescue swimmer instructor. Um, I remembered when I was a student, those guys looked like gods. And uh, 
you know, I thought, yeah, uh, get, yeah. give me some of that whipping rather than <laughs> getting. Uh, so uh, I went there and I was in Navy instructor school, which is before you went to the rescue swimmer instructor school. But I was in Navy instructor school in Tennessee when the first Gulf War broke. And, uh, you know, I, I was man, I, I was almost inconsolable at not being with my squadron as that happened. Oh, and, yeah. uh, so I called the detailer at the time and uh, I, I think it was Craig Dickover. So if you can imagine, you have a detailer and his name is Dickover. Uh, I, I, I got to know him later. He's a phenomenal guy. but At but, that uh, moment in time. <laughs> now, 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 actually, he gave me great advice. Um, oh, good. And I think it was Craig that was there at the time. I know I had another time with Craig later, but he said to me, um, actually, it might have been the detailer before Craig, but the detailer said, hey, look, I'll send you back to your squadron, but it's for another full sea tour, or you can continue and go on to SAR school. And uh, I waited and went to SAR school. And luckily, the, the war was over like a lickety split. And I, I didn't lose my school experience. Cool. Um, but getting to SAR school, that was an absolutely amazing experience. I, I mean, I got to work with some of the best guys, in, in my mind, in the Navy. Um, you know, we had legends like Russ Carr, Gary Telecki, uh, who was a you know, a, a notorious AW, some people would say infamous, phenomenal human being, uh, Rick Tabner, John Baring, um, you know, just countless, countless amazing people. And, you know, the thing is, and I'm, I'm sure you've been around them, when you get dropped into an environment like that, you're around all uber excelling people. Yes. And it just makes you want to give 100% of your best just to be there. So, you know, I was, I was there. I think I was a, a pretty good instructor. Uh, I think I had a propensity to get to the gray really fast. I, I would, I, I would ride that line of what you could do and what you couldn't do. And uh, <laughs> nice. quite a, quite, quite a few times, I think I tumbled head over heels. Yeah, uh, it happens. Um, but it, it's funny, a lot of people that became, you know, real dear friends to me later were actually my students in SAR school. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. And, you know, I'm actually my business partner now, Joe Sabia. Um, he mentioned, you know, he's like, do you, do you remember me in SAR school? I was like, hey, man, sorry. No. Um, you know, not not just off of the beginning piece, but, you know, several of the guys that I became dear friends with later were guys that I actually had that experience where they had a rocky point and something was going bad and, you know, being the, uh, I, I guess, angel of death, for some reason, I turned into an angel of mercy and helped these guys get on the right course at that point in time. That's awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, yeah. I hope but, that I can yeah. do the same to some people. Like, it, you know, I, there are guys in my life that have done the exact same and given me either a piece of advice, a direction and, you know, turned my life into a better direction. And I'm very thankful for them for it. So, 
the fact that you could say or they yeah, could say I, that you did that for them that's pretty that's awesome super stoked yeah it's it, it, it's very humbling um especially when you realize i mean if you take a look at all of us you know depending on what day they meet you and what the circumstances are you may be an angel or you may be a devil you yeah know? And, and i think we all have that duality in us, especially in an environment like that, I, I'm sure I was the monster to a lot more people than I was a savior to right. um, in point in time. But, you know, I, I would like to give, you know, a, a little bit of credit. You know, we had some leaders there in that schoolhouse that were phenomenal. Um, my first team leader when I got there was a guy named Kurt Stuman, And Kurt really helped put me and the guys that I was with uh, on the right path. And I, I think Kurt was just following senior chief, Chris Mitchell's, uh, how he set the pace for that entire schoolhouse. I mean, we, we were a lot like a bunch of rowdy pirates, but you know, if you heard Smith senior chief wants to see you on the bridge, first thing you did, you popped up, you walked over to the mirror, you know, you checked your uniform. Which Do was I look good? Enough. Do I look good yeah. enough to go see the man? Oh, oh, oh exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, your uniform's normally nothing more than a t-shirt and a pair of UDTs, but you were making sure your shit was yeah. tucked in. And uh, I need a different belt. It, I need a different belt. This one's got a scratch yeah. in it. Oh my gosh. And it, and it looked hundred percent right. Cause as soon as you walked up to him every single time, he, he, he'd look you in the eyes, look all the way to your feet and back up to your eyes, you know? So that's <laughs> standard um, was really good. And you know, the, the other thing I'll say was we were, on that base at that time under his leadership, we were untouchable. I mean, literally. Now, senior chief would whoop our ass, but nobody else on the base would touch us. I mean, we were we were 100% underneath his protection, and it was, uh, it was pretty amazing. Wow. Um, some of the other guys there that really, you know, inspired me, um, we had Andy Truman. The guy smoked, smoked like chimney but you know he ran like a gazelle uh pretty pretty amazing john bearing dear friend of mine and russ carr those guys were you know they taught me a lot about leading but you know not just leading but leading by example you know and that was a schoolhouse where you know you couldn't just sit there and stand and tell people hey do push-ups you you had to be able to do and if you wanted to be able to get in there and crush the students you had to make sure that you were doing it too oh yeah um and that was uh that that was that was a really good life lesson it's like hey you want to crush the students you yeah. better get good at something yeah whether it's flutter kicks push-ups you know you you name it um, you know, I, well, as a student, yeah. you know, when you look at your instructors getting getting down there with you doing the mm -hmm. push-ups, you know, you get a, a more respect for them moving forward. Absolutely. And I, you know, there weren't none of my instructors were ever on the side of the pool deck just yelling. You know, they were always either running. You know, there were guys in the water with us. Um, we, yeah, I had a lot of respect for all of my instructors. It was I had a great great school. Yeah, yeah, all the yeah. Way I, I can only imagine. So, so talking about that, um, we had a guy named Steve Larati, a Coast Guard guy. He was one of our instructors there. Phenomenal human being. Um, had, had a crazy sense of humor and probably the weirdest laugh because he'd be like, oh, <laughs> is that Steve? 
that's funny. But so I came over, I checked in the fleet replacement squadron, Lamps, East Coast. So what that's how Lamps? I went from so Lamps is light airborne multi-purpose system. Oh, yeah, so yeah. It, we were talking about that earlier. Okay. I, yep. So it is a helicopter that's designed primarily for uh, anti-submarine warfare, and they deploy on the smaller boats. Um, at least back in the day, things have changed drastically as time has gone on, but they were the smaller deployed aircraft. Um, so that's how I ended up changing from an HS, which is helicopter, you know, which was primarily plane guard and anti-submarine warfare, four-man crew to a three-man crew in LAMPS. Um, you know, all the students there are pretty much, you know, I'm a student now too, but they were all my students in SAR school. Um, so I, I reconnected with phenomenal guys like Joseph Sutherland, uh, John Bradshaw, just amazing people. And I ended up in HSL 48, a great squadron um, that just had, you know, they, they were a great squadron that, you know, we, we had a tendency to, again, drift over the gray line when it came to certain things. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, at HSL 48, phenomenal squadron and phenomenal pilots. Um, one of my pilots was a guy named Eric Cranford who uh, perished in the Pentagon, 9-11. Um, oh. wow. Yeah. Um, and uh, I did three, three deployments there. So the first deployment um, was, a, was to the Persian Gulf. Um, the second deployment was a ball tops, which, you know, for anybody in the Navy, you know, it's, it's kind of like winning the lottery to get on a ball tops. Oh, um, okay. Well, I, I, yeah. I have no idea what it is, so I'm, I'm intrigued. Okay. So, so it's a, it's a deployment to uh, Europe, the Northwestern portion of Europe. And you generally hit six, six places in six weeks. Oh, and wow. we hit England, Germany, Denmark, Poland, and Sweden in six oh. weeks. Nice. Um, yeah, it, it was a, uh, I don't think my liver has ever been more happy for a cruise to end than <laughs> that particular cruise. Uh, <laughs> nice. It, I like that. Yeah, it, it, it was a, it was a goodwill drinking cruise and uh, it, it, it was a phenomenal time. Um, I had a guy named Scott Shires and Jerry Day were on my sister ship. Very good friends. So I, I spent a good chunk of time with them. Uh, and then my last cruise there, um, I came back from that cruise and normally it was about a year between cruises. Um, but I came back from that cruise, another air crewman had some personal issues. So he had to drop off of his cruise and they asked me if I would take this one, which was, it was a shorty, it was a two, two and a half month counter narcotics cruise. Um, so I was back for two months and then left for the counter narcotics crews, um, which was absolutely phenomenal. Um, and you know, we got to work with a lot of Coast Guard guys. We had the lead dead on board. And uh, in, in that short cruise, you know, it was kind of, we caught the Christmas rush of cocaine for yeah. 1999. So, and in, you know, in we, this, this we, is we where you're just playing it. Yeah. You actually, again, you and I talked about this already, but. Uh, you got deployed to the water on this one too, kind of for recovery. Yes, yes. Well, well, multiple times on this particular. Oh, one. So, excellent. So, 
So just just to give you a little background on this particular cruise, one of the things that's really funny was um, prior to the cruise, the ship's crew had heard that there would be an NCIS agent placed into this crew because of the mission they were doing, but they wouldn't know who it was. So that other air crewman fell out just prior to the cruise, and then suddenly I'm there, and they don't know me. So the whole ship thinks I'm the NCIS agent. Oh which my is, gosh, which is really hilarious. So like things like waiting in line for food didn't happen. People just get out of my way. Uh, and 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 the other thing that had happened on that particular ship was just prior to cruising, they had failed like all their inspections. So while they're on this deployment, they're doing all their preps because they're going to have to redo inspections as soon as they get back to pass them for readiness. So um, the ship's captain saw me PTing one day and he calls me up to his uh, stateroom and he's like, hey, look, I want you to run our ship's PT program. And I'm like, no problem, sir. I said, you know, the only thing is, you know, my program, I run it my way. And if you're okay with that, cool. He's like, no, I want you to beat them all down. I'm like, no problem. So (laughs) this is after coming from a school. Yeah. Okay. No problem. Yeah. SAR school, buds. And now, you know, I've got this group of people and I've been given, you know, unfettered permission to just slay these guys. (laughs) And uh, so the first time I'm doing it, you know, we're, we're on the flight deck for about 45 minutes and there's this huge guy in the back and he is just sweating pools. And, you know, he, he's not putting forth hardly any effort. And I am just hammering him. I'm like, Hey, fat ass, get up. You know, I'm all over him. <laughs> Turns out he was the number three ranking officer on the ship. He was the Chang <laughs> chief engineer, <laughs> but oh, I didn't know. <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, never heard anything about it, but uh, it, it was definitely a, uh, an interesting evolution on that particular piece. So because we had done those things, um, the skipper, you know, they're like running crazy drills on the boat. And me and my other crewmen, we're out on the flight deck in our UDTs with lawn chairs and sunning when we're not flying. So we're watching guys pour out of the back of the ship in their full bone, firefighting, clothing, dripping sweat, Skipper's coming out, screaming and yelling at him. And then he'd be like, Petty Officer Smith, how's it going? I'm like, great, sir. Just looking for cocaine. He's like, you keep up the good work. And uh, so. Oh, that's great. So so about three weeks into the cruise, um, we just got done flying a functional check flight. And I land and I walk to the corner of the flight deck and I look out in the ocean. You know, we kind of got some ups and downs. And I'm like, I saw the, the maintenance chief. I was like, hey, chief, come here. I'm like, doesn't that look like a bail? He's like, I don't know what that looks like, but it looks like that. And he pointed at another one. And then I kind of like zoomed out with my eyes. And what had happened was we had driven the ship into one of the places where the narco guys had conducted an airdrop. Oh. And I think on that one, we probably got about 18 to 20 bales of cocaine. We oh called the bridge. Gosh. Yeah. Yes. We're not even in the air. No go fast. Nothing. I saw it from the edge of the flight deck. Wow. And we, we 
I want to say 18 to 20 bales on, on that particular one. Um, and then, then we hit the rush and it was absolutely crazy. Um, because we ended up getting eight go fast boats end game on them in, in, in a six week period. Wow. At one point in time, we're chasing one boat and you see another one going another way. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting back on the ship. I'm not flying now. My other crewman's out. I get a call. They're like, Hey, aircraft's coming back. Put your swimmer stuff on. One of the boats just dumped all this cocaine over the side. We're going to go get it. So th this is getting to what I had alluded to earlier. And uh, we're on our way to go get it. And I, I can remember sitting in the door and we're all looking for it. They're like, we're getting close. I'm like, okay. It's one of those moments where you can see the shadow of the aircraft on the water. Yep. And then all of a sudden I see, you know, the biggest shark I'd ever seen in my life. I'm like, look at the size of that shark. And, and the shark's outline looks about the same size as the shadow of the aircraft on the water. And uh, I'm like, man, that's a big shark. You know, maybe a minute or two later, we're like, there's a cocaine. Let's go. Poof. Into the water. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the yeah. second time I realize I'm in the food chain and way at the bottom. But I had totally forgotten about the shark until I'm stuffing like the third bale of cocaine into this bag. And all of a sudden I'm like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> I, I'm right in the area where all that was. So um, in the end, we had gotten 54 bales of cocaine out of that. Uh, Holy smoke. Yeah. Gave me a piece of paper saying I couldn't even have a drug test for six months because of the exposure uh, to being in the water with it and handling the bells. Um, so that cocaine was later used. We transferred it to another ship because President Clinton used it as a backdrop to one of his speeches on the war on drugs. Oh, wow. Now, cool. When we get ready to take it over to the other ship, you know, me having a sense of humor and I've got friends on the other ship. I go down into the galley and I'm like, hey, give me a bag full of flour. <laughs> so they do. And, uh, oh, I know, I know right where this is going. <laughs> we've got all the cocaine loaded in the aircraft. And right before we land, I take a big scoop and I just go poof. So I've got white all over my face, down the front of my flight gear, <laughs> all over my uniform. We land, they put chocks and chains on. And I come out with, you know, bail in each arm and I go running into the hangar. I'm like, where do you guys want this? And like everybody in the hangar is like, but nobody said a single <laughs> word to me. Not a single word. Not take that guy, get him drunk. Nothing. Not a single word. And, uh, my, oh, my good great. friend, oh, he's great. sleeping. That's great. He, he's sleeping. A guy named Tim Bray. He's uh, sound asleep, and I, I find out where his rack is. I go down there. I'm like, hey, man, how's it going? And he swears to this day that I got into the Coke, but I didn't. Uh, <laughs> so that was, oh, that's hilarious. And then probably one of the craziest ones we had on that one, um, and, and I, I still kind of regret not doing it to this day, but we pushed, um, we followed a boat, and while we're doing it, we're like 90 miles from the ship. You know, we're way far away wow. from the ship. We've got yeah. an altitude and catch them on the radio. And uh, as we're approaching their territorial waters, you know, we're like, you know, do we have clearance to 
to you know pursue because we're we're busting busting that line and they're like absolutely you know so then we come down to pursue now when we were going down to pursue them back then um our sop for the squadron in the wing was you could not go below 50 feet and one of the things that allowed us to get end game on eight go fast was we were going way below 50 feet and basically what we were doing was we were coming down so low and we'd kick off to the side of of the go fast and basically use our rotor wash to blow the water back in to the boat eventually you get enough water into the boat that it overrides the pump's ability to pump it out and the boats become slower oh wow um, on this particular one we we weren't able to get it you know this boat's just hauling butt and we're, we're trying to stop it before it makes land it goes over a coral reef takes the motor out 100 yards off from the coast took the motor so, out the guys get out the the motor came off the back of the boat wow as it, as it hit the coral reef just and uh the guys jump out they swim to shore and you just see them disappear into the woods. Then you start like seeing groups of people coming out, you know, it was like indigenous people, but you know, I, I know it wasn't, there must've been a small town right there, but they're coming out to see what's going on. And, you know, we're hovering over this boat and I'm like, I see a briefcase in the boat. And I'm, I'm like begging my pilot. I'm like, please let me lower my junior crewman. I cruised on that one with a guy named Ken Simon, phenomenal guy. Um, and we, we just wanted to get that case to see what was in it. Yeah. And, you know, the, the pilot's like, no, it might be dangerous. I'm like, let me get the case. He's like, no. So we don't get the case. So we get back to the boat. And uh, the only Coast Guard guy's name that I remember from that was a guy named Phil Arandondo. Um, So Phil Arandondo, he looked at us and he was like, look, I will guarantee you 100% that case was full of money. Um, he said, that's the same type of case. I guess at that point in time, they were finding a lot of these on boats that they had interdicted before they could get rid of things. Yep. And he, yep, that case was full of money. So I blew my first opportunity at an early retirement right there because a uh, pilot wouldn't let us get it. Oh man. Uh, yeah. 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 So that, that was, that was pretty much the end of that particular tour. Wow. Um, all right. So, uh, Post my time at HSL 51, I ended up getting a squadron called HSL 46, the Grandmasters. So one of the bennies to going to Japan is and being forward deployed naval forces is you get to work with the detailer a lot. And because you took that hard job to fill, the detailer really accommodates you when it comes to uh, helping the people that you have get orders and also helping you get the people that you want later. So I'm gonna go ahead and say when I got to HSL 46 and just prior, I started assembling what I'll go ahead and call a dream team. Nice. Um, and you know, this, this is not to take anything away from anybody in, other in any other squadron, but like I had the pick of the litter of the whole wing and I, I got them all. Um, and you know, I had guys like Travis Seek, Spencer Waite, uh, Brad, Chase Matthews. I mean, the, these 
first classes that I had were absolutely phenomenal. And uh, I, I could not have been more blessed with the people that I had there at HSL 46. And when I checked into the command, we had a CEO named Carl Bush. And also at 46, I worked with a uh, XO first and then became CEO um, Chuck Litchfield. And, you know, when you, when you talk about, you know, phenomenal leadership, um, both those men, you know, made it clear to everybody what the mission was, what the expectations were, and they were good, fair, decent people to work with. Awesome. That's always good uh, to hear. Oh, it was, it was, it was great. So I, I checked in there and immediately, you know, my SAR background, you know, a lot of, a lot of commands will just do the basic, you know, Hey, we're doing breaks, holds and releases. You just yep. kind of lay your arms up like that. And I, I remember our first time to the pool. Uh, I, I think I about had three swimmers DOR when I grabbed them and did not <laughs> let go. Um, and you know, after I grabbed the first guy, I could see the nervous looks around the pool from other people. They're like, what's going on? I'm like, look, you know, I, we're not here to practice training. We're here to train for the real thing. And if somebody's going to fight you, you're going to learn how to fight them off of you. And uh, so we 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 kind of changed training to a much more serious tone nice. when it came to that. And uh, it, it put us in a good light. Um, August 30th of that year, um, we were sitting at work. I think uh, somebody had the TV up and, you know, we, we knew about Hurricane Katrina had hit. Oh yeah. Um, Here it comes. Here it comes. (laughs) From from a, from a Navy standpoint, it had never been anything we'd done. It it wasn't, it wasn't a mission we trained for. It wasn't anything, but at, at 1630, I got called into the CEO's office and the CEO said, look, we're deploying tomorrow morning. Uh, we're going to go to Pensacola, set up a forward operating base, and then we're going to go do whatever it is we can do. So being a lamp squadron, uh, which, you know, it's a traditionally a three-man crew and a lot of ASW gear in there and also a RAST to help you land on the deck in high seas, um, the back of our aircraft is pretty full. Immediately, and I want to go ahead and give kudos now just so I don't forget later, The maintenance crews started stripping everything out of that aircraft that didn't have to be in there for us to conduct a rescue. Um, Those guys worked tirelessly and we didn't even leave seats in the back for us to sit in. Um, But we, all of it came out, everything. If it wasn't SAR gear, it was out. We did everything to save weight. We removed everything. And, you know, those guys are really, you know, when you're the SAR guy or you're the air crew, it's easy for people to turn around and give you accolades for, you know, the mission you accomplished. But I, I think a lot of times, you know, the people who make that mission possible, you know, the maintenance people, they really get left out, you know, so I would just like to go ahead and highlight them right there. Awesome. Um, we, our wing directed, uh, our, the wing directed our wing. So we had, HSL 40, which was the RAG, 42, 46, 44, and 48, um, and then HSL 60. They directed all the squadrons to see how many aircraft they could send. Um, And I think in the end, it was somewhere around eight to 10 aircraft um, we sent. But we were at work until midnight that night, and we had to be back in the morning at 4.30 because we started our flight brief at five in the morning. 
So awesome. That's that's pretty much that is the preamble to us actually deploying there. And once you got there, this is what I have. Uh, so I'm going to read it. And then I can't wait to hear about some of the rescues that you had out of there, which is funny. Uh, All right. Because, you know, like we've, we've had guys on here that have talked about Hurricane Katrina and the stuff that they had gone through, which is just mind blowing to me. Again, I was not there, um, but the mm. guys that were there and yourself included, I mean, you guys, you guys were doing some work. So the Navy, um, you earned yourself the Navy and Marine Corps medal out of this. And uh, yeah, let, let's do this. Let me read it. Chief of Naval Operations, the President of the United States takes pleasure in presenting the Navy and Marine Corps Medal to Chief Aviation Warfare Systems Operator, Kenneth L. Smith, United States Navy, for service set forth in the following. Citation, for heroism while serving as rescue swimmer attached to the Helicopter Anti-Submarine Squadron Light 46 in support of Joint Task Force Katrina on 3 September 2005. During an extremely dramatic and exhausting search and rescue mission over Louisiana, Chief Smith displayed bravery and selflessness with tremendous jeopardy of his own life safety by exposing himself to dangerous flying debris, toxic flood water, and myriad obstacles and hazards on the ground, rescuing numerous civilians from the ravaged city of New Orleans. After rescuing six survivors, including an infant, and a non-ambulatory elderly man, he located additional personnel stranded in a flooded residence. To effect their recovery, he was lowered on the hoist through a web of power lines and fallen trees, perilously swinging over sharp wooden fence posts protruding through the floodwaters of the victim's home. As Chief Smith was hoisted to the aircraft carrying each survivor, he used his body to shield them from the inherent danger of flying debris. While conducting a subsequent rescue, he waded through the chest-deep toxic water and ascended a home's flight of stairs to prepare a family for recovery, securing an infant to a raft bag. He immediately hoisted the victims one by one directly from the doorway to prevent them from exposure to the contaminated floodwaters. Chief Smith's actions during an over 10-hour mission resulted in the heroic rescue of 44 hurricane victims. By his courageous and prompt actions in the face of great personal risk, Chief Smith undoubtedly prevented the loss of more than 44 lives, hereby reflecting great credit upon himself and upholding the highest traditions of the United States Naval Forces. Oh, I love it, Ken. <laughs> Man, I, like I said, I know Katrina was off the hook, a, a Super Bowl of SAR. You know, the Navy coming in now, again, like I know the difference between as far as what you guys do as far as Navy and Coast Guard does. But you know what? We were in it was one fight, you know, one team, one fight in that one. So give us a rundown, man. What did you what did you deal with? Okay, so if I can go go ahead and set one thing, you know, early on, um, our crews did not train to operate in an urban environment. So that, that's one of the things that, you know, to me really jumps out. Um, during my time as a SAR evaluator, I, I got trained in the quick drop and the Navy started adjusting over to the Coast Guard gear. So that was a very big point. Everybody had the harnesses, everybody had the gear, but not everybody was trained in utilizing the quick drop and the procedures. 
So interesting. To, I did not know that. No, no. We uh, the Navy kind of piecemealed it together. If your squadron wanted to be trained, it meant a lot more work, a lot more stuff. SAR jumps was going to take longer. So some squadrons bought in, and others didn't. But with my background and you know having gone to the Advanced Rescue Swimmer School in Astoria while I was at a uh, forty, um, I, I realized instantly how critical this was going to be. So that morning we launched uh, from Jacksonville and we arrived at Pensacola. So we got to Pensacola probably about 9, 9.30 with all the helicopters. Maintenance people were going to be coming later, but I looked at Commander Fox, who was the XO for HSL 44. He was overall in charge of us. Um, he was going to be the senior officer there for our wing, and I was the senior naval air crewman there for our wing at that point in time. So pretty much I, I was his, uh, his partner in crime for, for that element, if you will. Um, as soon as we landed, I said, Commander Fox, uh, what do we need? Because like, I'm, I'm not wanting to hang out here in Pensacola. I'm wanting to take fuel and let, let's go. And he said, well, the first thing we need is an operations chief. I said, okay, no problem. Um, I'm walking up to toward HC-16 hangar because I'd been in Pensacola. I knew that there'd be people there. And I walk right up to a guy that I knew named Rob Carter. He was a rescue swimmer instructor years ago. I knew him and I'm like, Rob, I need a place to set up an operations for our squatter. He took me right to a room. I, I mean, I literally had a space for us inside of 50, 15 minutes. And I looked at all the aircraft and as soon as we landed, I'm like, two turnarounds on the aircraft. We're not hanging out here long. So we get our operation set up. You know, we've probably been there 15, 20 minutes. And I look at Commander Fox and I, I never knew him before, but, you know, I'm going to go ahead and say phenomenal officer. Um, when you see people make leadership decisions because it's right, not because it's necessarily personally right. You have to respect the hell out of that. And I looked at him. I'm like, Commander Fox, what are we doing? And he looked at me. He's like, Chief, we're waiting for orders. I'm like, okay. And, you know, you've got CNN playing on the yeah. on the TV in the corner. I wait about 10 minutes. And I'm like, Commander Fox, what are we doing? And, and I, I could already see he's getting tired of me. He's like, waiting on orders, Chief. And I pointed at the TV where CNN was playing. And I said, there's your order, sir. And he looked at me and he said, you know what, Chief, you're right. Tell him to go load up the aircraft. We're leaving. Yes. And that's, that's exactly what we did. So we were probably on the ground uh, maybe an hour in Pensacola where we've set up, done turnarounds on the aircraft, filled the aircraft with water. And our first missions coming out of there, um, you know, it wasn't the sexy mission we were looking for. But you could see on the uh, news, you could see that the, the biggest issue they really had going, even over rescues at that, that time, was getting relief supplies to the uh, dome. So we loaded up the aircraft and we start flying to, to uh, New Orleans. Now, what, what I'd like to highlight out of this is uh, as far as naval assets go, unless there were naval assets that were organic to that area, uh, we, Lamb's East Coast, we were the first people flying in there. Um, 
all the other naval assets that were coming in would come in a day later. So we, we, we were moving before a support system really existed. There was no AWACS in the air. There was no aircraft controlling authority. So when you flew in there, you flew in there and unlike normal aviation air, when yeah. you've got people controlling aircraft and who's going, it was not, there was nothing. Right. So we, we get close to the dome and you start trying to head in. And literally, if you had if you had 100 feet in between you and the aircraft in front of you, another helicopter would swoop in and get in between. So you really had to pick your interval correctly because I can remember at one point in time, looking out the cargo door and looking around us. And there were aircraft at varying altitudes at every clock position around you going different directions, doing different things. And oh, like, yeah. No controlling authority. Yeah. Um, and obviously, because the Coast Guard uh, had a unit there, you know, I, I saw their aircraft a couple times that day, too. But uh, I think there was probably quite a few National Guard helicopters that were there right out the gate because they were prepared ahead of time. Yeah. Um, but getting in there. So, you know, we get in there. I'm like, OK, we're going to drop off our supplies. We'd already been flying over thousands of people needing to be rescued. We're like marking everything in our computer where everybody is you know and i'm like okay let's drop this stuff off let's go get rescues we land they're like hey we need you to fly over here pick up these people and bring them here we stuck like most most of the helicopters that came there we got stuck in this loop of either getting more supplies or picking up people and bringing them to the dome so when i talk about rescues and i know a lot of guys have different numbers than me yeah. Um, the only numbers that I use when I talk about rescues, I mean, and, uh, we did a lot of what I'll call medevacs. I won't yep. call them rescues because there was no hoist operation or anything like that. Um, we probably moved 100 people that day and at least 10, 10 aircrafts full of water and food back and forth to the dome. Wow. Now, Commander Fox had put out to us all. He wanted everybody to meet at the airport there in New Orleans. Uh, in between 18 and 1900 and we would meet up and then we would all fly back together to Pensacola so that that was the plan for the day um, and you know we're getting in to the airport probably about uh, 18 15 um, and it's 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 dark as we're coming in um, and we get in and we land and Commander Fox's aircraft is right next to ours. And, you know, I'm like, I don't want to be here. I want to go get rescues. Let, let's go get rescues. And uh, we've got all these people marked. And I'm like, Commander Fox, how do we get fuel? And, and he, he looked at me and he said the wrong thing you can say to me. He's like, Chief, the aggressive guy gets the fuel first. I'm like, Roger that. But, but, but what he had also said in that is is they'd had people there waiting for over two hours waiting for fuel already you know they're just hanging out waiting to get fuel and i'm like okay so you know my pilot walks off with commander fox and i take my surefire flashlight out and i see the fuel truck and i spotlight the fuel truck driver i keep my light in his eyes until he pulls right up to me i literally have our aircraft topped off and fuel in 15 minutes wow and uh, well please sir like done. Yeah, everything's done. I go walking back over there uh, and I'm like, 
I look at my pilot, which was a, a Lieutenant Palermo, phenomenal pilot. Um, I, I'm going to go ahead and say, you know, I, I owe him my life. Almost all of my all of my flights at Katrina were with him and over half of them at Rita later were with him. Um, just you, you cannot beat him as a pilot. Um, my my hoist operator that day was a guy named Travis Seek, who is one of my dearest, longest, best friends. Uh, and, you know, I, I trusted him to be on the hoist, which, you know, says a lot because I, I was senior to him, but I knew I had more SAR experience. So we, uh, I, I, I looked at my pilot, I'm like, come on, let's go. And, you know, Skipper Fox is looking at me like, what do you mean? I'm like, sir, we've already got fuel. Can we go get rescues? <laughs> and, he, and he looks at me and he's like, as long as you're back in Pensacola by 2300. I, I'm like, Roger that, you know, Palermo looking at me like, how in the heck did you do that? You know, I'm like, I'd, I'd have siphoned gas out of other people's helicopters if I had to <laughs> point in time. So um, we had one position marked that wasn't too far from the dome. Uh, that was a building that looked like it had probably 33 people on top of it. Um, as my memory serves, it was either a three or five story building. Uh, water was had uh, covered the first story of the building. Yeah. So we get into position, we get over there, <coughs> get over the position and I start getting lowered down. Now this, this was one of those times where I guess maybe the lighting was off or whatever, because the hoist operator and I both kind of read the distance wrong. And it was, you know, it, it, it was a real John Belushi move moment because, you know, I hit that roof hard, fast and tucked and rolled. <laughs> so he uh lowers me down to the roof and uh, i impact pretty hard tucked and rolled pop back up like john belushi in animal house and uh then i'm looking at this large crowd of people and i was like who's in charge and an elderly man came up to me and i was like look i don't want to separate families so organize your people elderly and children and then families. So we could make sure that when we were picking, because we knew we could only put so many people in the aircraft, that we were picking people out in a manner that was going to allow us. Yeah. Now, when you take a look at our LAMPS aircraft, traditionally, you would have two seats in the back. Uh, we had been utilizing cases of water for just me and my crewmen to sit on it. Everything else had been pulled out of the aircraft. Right. So we started with four guys in the aircraft. So the, he starts giving me people, start raising them. I think I've got about seven people into the aircraft. And at this point in time, I get approached by what I'll go ahead and call two gangbangers. And this was a, kind of a real touch and go moment because it, they're like, hey, we're next. And I'm like, no, you're not. And the guy pulls up a shirt and he shows me a gun. And he's like, we're next. And I'm like, no, you're not. And this, this, you know, there was a moment where I felt inside pretty helpless, but I knew I couldn't say anything to them. And, you know, so I just looked at the guy. I'm like, look, man, you can make me put you on the hoist. I said, but if I do, they're going to go up to about a thousand feet and they're going to cut it and you're going to fall to your death. <laughs> and, you know, that, thank the Lord. They uh, at very least believed my bluff and they turned around and they walked off and I didn't see those two guys again. 
Wow. Um, we continued to hoist people up and hoist people up and hoist people up. And in the end, you know, I, I can remember, I'm like, I'd hoist another guy up and I'm looking at my crew and he's like, one more. And I'm like, okay, send him another. And I look at Travis and he's like, one more. And I'm like, how many people are in this? At that point, I had lost track of how many people yeah. they put in the aircraft. Then we finally, he's like, one more. And he points and he's like, and you. Yeah. So okay. I, hook, I hook up with the last guy. We get up. And when I get into the aircraft, I pull myself forward and he shuts the door behind me. And I am stuck in a semi standing position um, because there's nowhere for me to go. He has literally sat people all the way up in the tunnel and throughout the aircraft, sit one person down, sit the next person in their lap, sit the next person in their lap. So we get to the aircraft. We, we had put 13 people not including the four air crew. We had 17 people in a Bravo. Wow. And when we got to the airport, it looked like a clown car. They just kept coming out and coming out. I'm like, holy cow. Holy um, so, so day one, those, those were our first rescues on day one. Um, we flew back to Pensacola. And, you know, the, this is kind of funny. So Pensacola had, had some really interesting... Uh, nightlife what i'll call it and you know there's a very famous or notorious place called sammy's it was a strip club oh so nice. I, I grab all the swimmers that were there that night we go out and you know it it, it was not a wild party because everybody was you know from waking from briefing at five o'clock that morning to being there at you know midnight it, it was everybody was totally drained and i can remember looking at one of my guys and he's sitting up at the stage but he's passed out. He, he's just sound asleep. <laughs> At the stage? I like, of the strip yeah. club. <laughs> he, he had maybe one beer and he was out cold. That's hilarious. Uh, yeah, so it was, it was not a wild night for us. To oh, say. that's funny. Um, so what we ended up doing following day one was we realized that this was a rapidly changing and evolving environment. We had more air crews than aircraft. On day two, what ended up happening was a lot of other different types of aircraft came into Pensacola along with a Navy Admiral. Yeah. Um, so we ended up getting West Coast squadrons came in with us. That was a guy named Randy Schwartz was the senior air crewman and Bobby Deaton. So we arranged at that point in time, what we would do is, is we would leave one East Coast leadership with one West Coast leadership and we would alternate days. And, you know, pretty much you had an on-fly day, an ops day, and then an on-fly day. You know, so it was every other day was really your day in the fire. Yeah. And that allowed yeah. us to be able to start putting, you know, some good leadership into it. Uh, at the end of day one, we wrote down everybody's lessons learned. When crews came in to leave the next morning, they were all reading what people did and what worked. Oh, that's um, smart. Super smart. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, everything was changing fast. Yeah. Um, you know, by like day three, we've got aircraft getting shot at. Um, you know, we, we were borrowing chainsaws from fire departments so we could get in through roofs because they were getting phone calls from people that were stuck in the roofs that couldn't get out. Yeah. Um, but one of, one of the 
big things that came out of us doing the alternating thing um, was us really being able to capture the lessons learned uh, on day two. Anybody who wasn't trained in direct deployment went to the pool and got trained in direct deployment. Oh, we spoke wow. to the West Coast. We're like, hey, look, um, we need to be able to do this. We don't have the time or the mechanism to get everybody trained and do the practice in the aircraft. Can we do this? And they gave us their Omni Domni. And they're like, yeah, but afterward, they got to go back and do the regular training. I'm like, that's okay, so funny. <laughs> you know, you got to get trained. And you're like, I just saved 15 people. What do you mean I got to go get trained? I, I thought that was my training. <laughs> I should be checked off right, right now. <laughs> exactly. I should be teaching you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, one of, one of the uh, interesting pieces out of that, that was, you know, with getting all the guys trained, um, it was greatly reducing the amount of time that it took to do a recovery. Yeah. As you know, the quick shot, I mean, it's fast. Oh, it's, and it's great. Oh, I love it. A lot, a lot of the rescues that were being done were being done out of these tall apartment buildings that were made of brick with just like a metal balcony. So they were like bouncing from one balcony to the next balcony to the next balcony and, and making all that happen that way. Uh, I, I want to give kudos to a guy named Matt Haydu. I think it was day two that he went out. It might have been day one, but he was the first guy that really ran into the problem of what are we going to do when we have babies? Um, and Matt Haydu uh, was the guy that, at least in my mind, came up with the whole baby bag evolution. What he did was they dumped out the wrap bag. And what they would do was when they got a baby, they would place the baby in the wrap bag. They would zip up the wrap bag, leave a little hole so oxygen still goes through. And yeah. we would connect that to the small hook on the rescue hook. Okay. Then when the swimmer would go up, he would hold the baby in his arms while he was being hoisted. And if something happened and he was knocked out, the baby still wouldn't fall because okay. it was still attached to the bag. Um, I, I want to say there were probably 20 babies rescued wow. that way from our air. Um, so, you know, and I employed his technique three different times um, myself, which, you know, it, it worked great. Um, so the hook you're referring to, for those that don't know, especially um, some of the, like, I, I know which one you're talking about. There's those two hooks. There's the main gated hook, and then there, there's known as the male hook on the back side. It's just a small utility ring hook. And yes. um, so I, I know exactly what you're talking about with that. That's actually, that's not intended like that, but that's pretty smart. <laughs> Like you have to adapt and overcome. And when you get into situations like that, something that, you know, a lot of guys don't know is that the, you guys with the Navy, you, the rescue basket was not part of your kit to, no. to show up. So if you don't have a rescue basket to put somebody in a baby or a mother and a child, well, then you gotta, you better have another alternative way. So the fact you guys are dumping a raft out now using the bag, connecting to the hook as a safety aspect to like okay now it's not going to fall no matter what you have a backup man well done i like that yeah and you know I, i'm pretty sure somebody else would have drove to that um but matt was the first person that came up with the the experience and you know he he did great and you know our doing the debriefs allowed so many other people to be able to do it because yeah. they had a solution to it um before they encountered the problem yeah um, very cool there's like, so the well, hoist hooks now that I use, we don't have that mm -hmm. option. And I, I, 
man, I love the hoist hook I use now. It's the LSC uh, auto locking hook. Um, Capewell makes the one with the slide lock. They have another auto locking, but it's one spot to go on that hook. You do not have multiple attachment points. It's you have the main holding or the main gate itself. You drop in, you're in. So, right. well, you know, and that probably we could have worked that the same way. We would have just connected to the same big hook with the top of the wrap bag. And, right. You know, I knew that it'll more than hold two people. So a baby and a person, no problem whatsoever. Yeah. Um, so that kind of gets through my second day. Um, I, I was ops on the second day. So, you know, we, we trained people, we ran flight schedules, we made sure turnovers. Um, an interesting though thing though that happened on the second day. So on the first day, um, I got 13 rescues, which were, those were all at night. Uh, when we were flying back, um, we saw a guy that was trying to signal us with a flashlight. So it's like, okay, maybe we'll get one more on our way back. So we're somewhere over Mississippi, I get lowered and, you know, I want to go ahead and highlight right now the skill of both the pilots and the crew chiefs in these aircrafts. Um, I, if you had asked me before, were our pilots that skillful? I, I never had a measure. Um, but, you know, when you've got pilots hovering aircraft and crewmen guiding aircraft, where literally their tail rotor is within five feet on either side of a tree or a building, and they're holding that hover so perfectly that you're getting dropped through a web of power lines that you easily could have reached your hand out to any side and touched. Um, that, wow. that skill level, uh, it, it, it blew my mind. It really, it was an amazing sight to see because they, they were just phenomenal. So, on that particular time, I get lowered down through this web. I, I mean, and it's it's hairy. Now, the lines aren't energized because there's no lights on. But okay. could they come back on at any given time? Absolutely. I get and lowered down. You don't down know. And, That's the kick is you don't right, know. And you're right. going in between them right now. It's like, oh, and, <laughs> come on. And I can't get to where the house is. So they lower me down in the middle of the street. And when they lower me down in the middle of the street, it's over my head. So I, I'm treading water, disconnecting. I swim over to this front porch and I shit you not. I get there. I'm like, all right, man, come on. He's like, no, I don't want to go. Do you got any food and water? And I'm like, look, man, this isn't Domino's. I just risked my life to come down here to get you out. I'm like, yes, I've got food and water. It's in the helicopter. Come with me. He's like, no, I'm good. I said, and I looked at him. I'm like, look, man. I'm going to get in the helicopter. We're going to mark this area off as good. Nobody needs rescue. Now's your chance. He's like, no, I'm good. So I swim back out to the middle. I hook back up. And while I'm going up, you know, through the power lines, I'm like, I am not doing this again at night. Absolutely not. This is too dicey. As I'm getting brought in the aircraft, my senior crewman's like, we're not doing this again at night. No way. Um, and, you know, so I, I, I'm sure there's more. I don't have more captured in my head, but at least from our airway, I, I believe that those were the only, the 13 that I previously got were the only conducted at night that we got. Um, I, I wow. could be wrong, but 
you know, it was after that we came back, we're like, okay, guys, you know, we're not, we're not doing night rescues. Um, it's just, it, it's too dicey. We didn't have MVGs then. And yeah. the environment was too volatile. Right. Um, well, NVGs are one a major of the game changer too. So like, yeah, 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 for sure. They, they really, they really are. Um, so one of the other things being in a leadership position in the beginning, there were so many people that needed to be rescued. And, you know, I am a ginormous animal lover, but we had to tell guys, we're like, look, people, 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 people. Um, yeah. can't take animals. And, and that, that persisted till about day three, no animals, because, you know, if you got a choice between a puppy or a human being, you've got to pick a human being. Yeah. Um, so that, that was one of the big kickers, uh, onto my day three. So my day three was my big day. And that's the day that I ended up getting 44. Uh, my crew chief that day was a guy named Spencer Waite, again, top notch, uh, crew chief, top-notch hoist operator, top-notch rescue swimmer. Um, I, I would like to highlight when you take a look at all the swimmers that went there, uh, East, West Coast, HSC, HSL, HS, it really doesn't matter. Um, any one of those swimmers could have been placed in any position and would have gotten phenomenal results. Um, like you said, it was a Super Bowl of rescue swimmers, but I like to say, um, it was more like a lottery of rescue swimmers. You know, we were available and that's why we were there. You know, the guys who got sent there, we weren't all sent because we were the best. Yeah. No, we, we were sent because we were available. Right. And what I'd like to say is it, it proved the process that we had was the best um, because everybody went out and did phenomenal work. Um, so some of my rescues on that day, um, one of the ones that really stands out to me, and you know, they, they talk a little bit about it in the write-up, but a lot of times when you, you hear the write-up or how things turn into words, it, it gets a little choppy and it's a little bit hard to understand. So that's why I do this podcast. Come on, let's go, right. Ken. So, <laughs> so we, we, we hit one house and we got it. And then, you know, we got the people up there and the guy's like, Hey, my mom is in this other house. Can we go there? It's like a block away. So, you know, we've got the guy pointing out, he's guiding us. There's the house. So, um, like if you were to take a look at the front porch, about eight feet from the front porch is a tall wooden picket fence with sharp things going all the way across the top. Yeah. There's a wire fence going down the length of the house. And then it comes across the back of the house too. So they had about maybe four feet, uh, you know, and we were also dealing with power lines, but about four feet of space in which to hoist me down and then swing me onto the front porch. So they get me down, you know, I'm like level off that way, you know? Yeah. He starts swinging, he gets it and lowers it and, you know, feet out, ass down, you know, you slam it, slam onto the porch, grab a hold of whatever you can. So hopefully you don't fall back off. And I get there, you know, and you've got your, your old, what I'll call probably fifties raggedy front porch door, you know, it's falling apart. It's metal. It's, it's, clearly not the best repair of its life, but you know, I'm banging on the screen door 
bang, 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 nobody answers, bang, 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 nobody answers. I jump on the radio. I'm like, hey, nobody's answering. He's like, his mom is there. Guarantees. I'm like, okay, let's try the back door. So swings me out. I bounce off the fence. Um, took a pretty good shot to my back. He hoists me up, takes me over to the top of the house, lowers me, and then transitions the aircraft while I walk across the top and come down the back onto the back porch. Um, bang, 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 bang. Nobody answers. I'm like, okay. And, you know, I jump on the radio. I'm like, look, you got to get me more comps. Does the back connect to the front house? And he's like, I'm talking to a guy. He says, no. So I go around to the front and, you know, now I'm banging like a banshee and she comes to the door and she's got, there's probably like four or five people in the house. And uh, it, you know, taking a look at the angle, taking a look at the weight when I connect somebody to me. Um, he couldn't even see me when I'm on the front porch. And the front porch is probably 10 feet up, but probably five feet over the water. So when, when it comes time to raise me, I'm like, hey, man, when you hoist me, hoist me fast. So I'm like, hit it. So starts hoisting. It's craning off the bottom of the thing. And then all of a sudden, once it gets enough to where our feet lift off the ground, we go across into the wooden fence. And, you know, every single time I turn to use my back to cushion the survivor. But... We took we we took four people out of there like that. Um, Holy smoke! But you know it was. I'll tell you, they all kind of blend together. You know, I mean, you get forty four in a day. It's a lot. You know, plus you know, I'm not ex exactly a spring chicken. You know, so the memory isn't always the best. Um, all good. What one of the, one of the other ones that stands out really good is we had these uh, apartment complex surrounded by a wooden fence narrow kind of like a 20 foot courtyard in the middle but our idea is there's a field next to it is they're going to put me down in the field and then i'll be able to go into the complex because when we first flew over the complex what we ended up seeing was all the shingles were coming off the roof and i can remember looking uh when when i made it to the ground and i'm looking up um the shingles are coming off the roof and i'm watching them wash through the rotor wash holy um, smoke yeah just, just debris is coming down through it um and you know we had a lot of engines damaged uh through objects like that but so the original plan is is i'm going to get lowered with an axe i'm going to cut my way through the fence and then make it into the courtyard organize people and then we'll start bringing people out well my uh Sp spencer told me this story later and it's kind of funny because i get down there with the axe and I'm swinging. He's like, oh, he's chopping with the axe. And he's like, he, he's getting slower. He's slowing down. <laughs> finally to the end, you know, I finally got enough pieces and I can get the axe inside and start prying out sections to where we could really open up a good thing. Yeah. But I, I think we pulled probably maybe 10 people out of that area that hadn't departed before. Now, day three, I hadn't spoke to my wife since we left, you know, so my wife and kids, they're glued to the TV the whole time. And, you know, I was always kind of a gear guy and always kind of like to have nice stuff and, you know, a little edgy. It's kind of the rules say you can have this, but I'm going to have this. Uh, <laughs> nice. So I, uh, in that environment, rather than just having a visor, I liked wearing goggles. So I had a pair of Oakley goggles, you know, so they're pretty distinct. Not everybody's wearing them. 
And on day three, I get lowered into the street. And I, I think I sent you a couple pictures of this particular rescue because I can remember while I'm in the street, I see a news helicopter and it starts flying around. Um, and I'm, I'm pulling three people out of this particular area. Um, I get three people out that we found in the street and my wife is watching TV and she sees this. And, you know, my wife only sees the back. And this is kind of funny because my wife's like, that's Kenny's ass. She identifies me through her flight suit. That that's her husband's ass. Oh, that's funny. So, well, done, man. well done. <laughs> yeah. I turn around, she sees the goggles and it's like crystal clear. That is my husband. There it is. She's like, Courtney, it's your dad. Come look. So, uh, you know, that, that was those rescues there. Um, another one that kind of, kind of still gets me, you know, so toward the end of day three, uh, for us, the rescues had kind of tapered off. They weren't like, it wasn't like gangbusters toward the end. And, uh, I'm getting this guy, uh, you know, same thing, you know, lower down in the water, swim over to his porch, walk up the stairs. And, you know, the guy's got a box of puppies. Mm. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I'm not I'm not at a point right now where we can't take them. Um, I'm like, OK, you know, we're, we're I, I'm not choosing between people and animals at this point. Yeah. But the guy I, I'm I'm probably up to about my waist in water and he goes to hand me the box and the box just falls apart as he's like this puppies are all going in i snatched up what i could but i can tell you that still haunts me because i know i lost several oh, and i'm just man. like um, you know i know a lot of people you know that we, we saw so many dead bodies in the water all over the place my first rescue uh the first night you know while my crewman's looking at me over here rescuing people, he's looking at bodies floating right next, right next to where we were at. They were just lower in the street. Uh, so, you know, that that was one of the things that got, you know, I didn't like. Uh, I think it was my day five because we were altering alternating days. Um, I saw a Rottweiler on top of a roof. You know, now by day five, it was like it was very sparse getting rescues. And I'm like, let's see if we can get close. And, and uh we couldn't. The dog jumped off the roof and started swimming off. And, you know, it's like, OK, we're not we're not helping him at this point. Yeah. But, you know, I told my wife, you know, how much that kind of haunted me. You know, so we we get in and we, you know, we do all the rescues. Um, I will say this. We did have one crew that lost a person. Uh, oh. And, you know, I, I won't give any names. You know, I wasn't there. I don't know the exact circumstances. We talked uh about it afterward um i'll also caveat and say a lot of a lot of safety things that i've seen in my naval career you know you end up with a, a rescue strop that doesn't only have one safety strap now it's got two or now it's got three normally it's not that the first one didn't work it's that the first one wasn't used right um you know but the, the whole story doesn't come out so we start creating things that will how do I put fix this? Something that that will... doesn't need to be fixed. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. You're fixing yeah. the problem that need to be fixed. Right. The the problem that, that needed to been... be fixed was the training itself to begin with, or the correction of the guy that made the mistake owning it yeah. and being able to yeah. correct it himself. Yeah. I, yeah. I've run into that many times. I know exactly what you're talking about. Now, I won't say without a doubt, 
that this is that case. Um, okay. As I understand it, they were picking up a extremely large woman. They had the safety strap applied uh, and they weren't using the quick strop on her. For some reason, they were using the regular rescue strop and yep. the safety strap on that, you know, just in case it's a little different from yours. When the safety strap is applied, the arms are down at the side, the safety strap goes around the arms and buckles underneath the strop in the front. Agreed. Okay. Um, what apparently ended up happening is right as they got to the door, this woman decided she wanted to help and she raised her arms. To grab the yeah. aircraft to help pull herself yeah. in. Yeah. She raised her arms. Um, the crewman mm. was also with her. So I think right at the same time that he went to reach to help pull in, she raised her arms and she just went straight through to the deck. Oh, um, man. They got a hold of the Coast Guard aircraft that was close that had a litter and they littered her out. We did hear later that she didn't make it. Uh, oh. Yeah, so, you know, it's I, I, I feel truly sorry for that crew because I know it's not anything that they would want. I feel truly sorry for that family. Uh, but, yeah. you know, unfortunately, it's not a zero, zero sum gain uh, event. You know, it's it's not 100 percent safe. Right. No, hey, what we do is dangerous, you know, and mm -hmm. you're hanging from a helicopter, you know. Yeah. <laughs> as much as we all love it. Uh, yeah, it, it comes with its own inherent dangers. So absolutely. Um so we, we ended up wrapping up that event and, uh, you know, everybody came back at different times and uh, toward the end, it was, you know, it turned into really benign, you know, a lot of flying around, very few people getting rescues. Some guys were still getting cats and dogs, you know, yeah. the random rescue here and there, it tapered off. Uh, one, of, <clears throat> one of the things I would like to highlight is, uh, you know, one of the things we encountered, if if I can call it, this is rescue fever. Um, you know, you, you got called to the Super Bowl of rescues and, you know, guys, you know, and I'll go ahead and say myself included, you know, you're wanting more. There never seems to be enough rescues. You want more. Oh, you got 15 yesterday. I did 18 years, never had a rescue. Yeah. 15 not enough. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it kind of really created that circle. Um, I think had I been more mature as a leader at that time, I probably would have done what I could to squash it. But, you know, that little reflection back, uh, I didn't do it 100%. Um, the water. Let me talk about the water here for a second. All right. So, well, on. actually, hold on. Let, let me back up yeah. to that because because that's a that's actually a pretty good discussion, and I, I haven't had anybody actually talk about something like that where, you know, it's I'm going to call it an addiction. Like you get a good SAR case, you get that rescue, you are you're sucked in. Like you you want to do more. One of the things about that that idea of you know, getting that rescue is you get addicted to it. That's that you get sucked in and you want to yes. get more and you want another one. And it's not, I'm not looking for people to get hurt, but man, I, I get, I get Jones and when the alarm goes off, I'm like, yeah, let's go, let's go do this. And right. you know, I, I've been in the spot where um, I get really excited about going and I, I don't have a problem admitting this now. <laughs> 
but I was right. pumped. I'm like, yeah, let's go. Let's do this. And I had two people be like, dude, calm down. And I'm like, but it's, you know, it's a case. Let's go. And they're like, calm the fuck down. I'm like, all right. You know, and I got put in check. And the worst part about that in particular in- incident for me was we didn't end up going. It got canceled. So I'm all Jones up for this, this case to the rescue to go to. And it never even happened. Yeah. So for, you know, I, I agree with you with that. That's something that has to be put in check for all of us that go out and do this, especially when it's one after the next, after the next, you have to keep yourself in check. So, so I think our, I think our rescue fever, it wasn't that like exuberant excitement. It was just kind of like more like feeding an addiction. Um, you know, so, you know, we, we had, we had a lot of air crewmen that showed up without aircraft and we didn't put them in play as early as we should have. Um, and I think we could have definitely done that. Um, but it was one of those things like, Hey man, you didn't bring an aircraft. I'm not going to sit back for an extra day just so you can go play. Right. We probably right. should. You know, again, I'd like to say maintenance, um, maintenance, maintenance, maintenance. Those, those guys were phenomenal. How they kept our aircraft flying. I don't know. Um, because we abused the hell out of those, <laughs> you know, and I think half the aircraft when we came back and they, they did inspections on the engines, half the engines had to be replaced. Oh my gosh. Because of the debris through the engine that had taken out portions of the engine, um, you know, so fly, flying an aircraft to the edge of its capability, they, they definitely did that. Um, that's awesome. I, I don't know if it's awesome that maybe that's a poor choice of words. Yeah. That's, that's a bummer. That's a lot of money. <laughs> Sorry, government. <laughs> yeah. Now on, on the backside of that. So we came back and then, you know, uh, about two weeks later, we get called out for Rita, but you know, the Navy now for Rita is, you know, they're, they're trying to do things big Navy wise. And honestly, they made a call that ended up being horrible. They decided they were going to put us on a uh, on a on a Gator boat, you know, which is meant for Marines, and pull all the Navy on that. And then they'll just pull right off of New Orleans. Um, but what that did was, when we did that, that cut our crew day because not every helicopter pilot was current for night landings at sea. So while we could have stayed there as long as we wanted. Uh, not going to a boat, going to a boat actually reduced our crew day. Hmm. Interesting. Um, which, which had a weird side effect. Uh, rescues at Rita, there weren't nearly as many. Uh, well, like, we're going to get like into in Rita my... in a second. Hold on. Don't, don't jump the gun on me because right. we got a little something I get to read on that one too. But you, you were actually right. mentioning one more thing about New Orleans in particular, and that was the water, like just going down hmm. in the water. So day one, and this was probably everything coming out of the swamp, uh, day one, about 30 feet above the water, the smell would kick in and you could smell it and it was bad. By my day three, 600 feet above the water, you could smell the sewage, nasty swamp smell, 600 feet. And and it was very intense. Myself and several others ended up at medical treating rashes and things that we got as a result of it. Uh, for years, my wife coined it Katrina foot 
Um, <laughs> one, foot, one foot that uh, gave my problems following that, you know, and it, it, I probably had rashes on that foot for a, a good 10 years. Holy smoke. Yeah. And it, and it wasn't, it wasn't regular footage or whatever. Not at all. Jeez, um, oh man. Now, I, I did, I did forget probably for me, what is, what is the coolest thing? And, you know, this, this speaks to what an amazing wife I have. Um, as we got to the backside of the operation, comms picked up. I was able to talk to my wife. Uh, you know, I, I told her how the animals bugged me, you know, not, not being able to get the animals and spoke about the Rottweiler in particular that I couldn't get. We own Rottweilers and uh. had in the past. And, you know, my wife, you know, when I got home, I was spent, I was tired, I was exhausted, you know, like everybody else that went, you know, but, you know, there's, there's a mental toll that comes with getting in that zone and staying there for such an extended period of time. And, you know, I, I'd probably hit my mark at that point. When I walked through the door, I'm probably going to get emotional on this. My wife's like, hey, you need to go in your office. And uh, I went in the office and in the office was a Rottweiler puppy that Aww. she had got. Come and, on. Uh, go. No, nice job. Yeah. And the Rottweiler's puppy was, her name was Katrina. Oh, so, man. Yeah. What a nice touch. Can't beat it. So, you know, that, that speaks to what an amazing wife I have that she read me and knew exactly what I needed right then and there. Wow. Yeah. Well played, ma'am. Good job. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One last thing. Yeah. One more thing for Katrina. So, Hit me. What do you got? So if you watch the news, you would believe that FEMA wasn't anywhere. I'm here to tell you FEMA was everywhere. I realize as if you're having the worst day of your life and you're sitting in your house, um, at least everywhere in New Orleans, let, let me say that, um, you're having the worst day of your life, maybe FEMA didn't come and knock on your door and be like, I'm FEMA, I'm here to help you. I, I, I realized that they didn't get to everybody. But what I will tell you is I saw FEMA everywhere. And maybe if those people had opened their front door and looked left or looked right, they would have seen FEMA because they're... Their output was absolutely amazing and stunning. And I, I don't think I've ever seen any organization respond to that level like I did there. It, absolutely amazing. Wow. The, nice. The, yeah. I, and I know that's contrary, you know, when you get into politics to, to the spin that was placed on what happened there. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, I've got several other things I want to go back to on, on Katrina on that. But, you know, the second piece for me, was, you know, if you weren't happy with FEMA, maybe you should have hired the people that were running the ABC liquor stores. Um, and I don't mean to say something totally unpopular, but I'm going to go ahead and say that 75% of the adults that we rescued uh, were underneath the influence of some drug or alcohol. Um, not that we gave them piss tests or anything, but their behavior was so erratic that you know, it, it struck me as falling into those categories. We found weapons in aircraft. We found needles, drugs. You know, when you pile all the people out, just the stuff that's left laying around, um, a lot of those things were there, you know. So if anybody listens to this, moving into the future, 
hey, leave when they ask you to leave if you can, because it, it can make the difference between life and death. And, you know, maybe not just yours, maybe the life and death of somebody who's coming to have to rescue you because you wouldn't leave when you were given wise advice to leave. Right. Um, yeah. Now, you had mentioned the Navy Marine Corps medal. Uh, I would like to bring that up for a second, only because I feel, you know, first off, it's weird to me that the Navy Marine Corps medal is above a bronze star. Um, I equate a bronze star to a combat award. And, you know, it, you know, I, I think most people that have this medal probably feel this way, but it, it makes me quite uncomfortable. Um, it, it makes me uncomfortable because quite honestly, I think every rescue swimmer I know would have taken leave to go be at Katrina. You know, <laughs> it, not, we weren't sent into no. war right. with the thought that we're going to die. Now, yeah. you know, every rescue swimmer that I knew there, regardless of branch and what they did, did amazing things. And we weren't trained for that environment. Um, it, it just speaks to the professionalism and the other training that we had, we made it work in that environment. You know, so that that's a big piece. But, you know, two other rescues I would like to cover. And I think these are rescues that really highlight the uh, So Others May Live. Very good. One was conducted by a guy named Chase Matthews. Chase Matthews uh, had conducted a rescue at one house. And if I get any of these pieces wrong, Chase, I apologize. Uh, I'm just saying it as I remember it to the best. We're just going to have to get Chase on here to back these words up. Come on, Ken. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Chase, you're being but, called out. <laughs> but Chase uh, somehow found out that there were people in this house. Um, and the water was above the threshold of the door. Chase swims into the house. Oh. And when he gets to a back room in this house, there's a lady. And it's either a male or female. I can't remember which. But this person is paralyzed. They don't have use of their legs. Chase is in this house. He's trying to figure out what he's going to do. And he grabs an ironing board and makes a backboard out of this ironing board. He pulls down the stairs to the attic, you know, the rickety stairs that they have yeah. in all the old house where you flip the thing down. And he drags this person into the attic with the other person. He then kicks out uh, one of the eaves that allows airflow into the top, yeah. drags the person out onto the roof, then places the person into a litter, and they hoist that person up. Holy um, smoke. What? I, I, I don't think Chase Matthews ever weighed more than a buck fifty. Uh, I, I could be wrong. I haven't seen him in a lot of years. But the mere fact that he was able to do, you know, A, the imp improvising, not giving up, doing incredible, tremendous feats, to me, just blows me away. That's um, awesome. You know, I'm proud to get to serve with guys like that. The other one that stands out, and I know absolutely every person I had there has an amazing story. Uh, from our wing, we had four Navy Marine Corps medals. I was one of the people who got one. Um, but I, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, probably every swimmer we had was deserving uh, maybe the writing ability of the people who wrote their awards didn't convey it as well. Uh, there was nobody who did anything more. But one of the ones that really stood out to me was uh, there was a chief, Jim Swanson from 44. 
Jim ended up being at one of those uh, old folks homes where people were left behind. Um, he found it and he was having to go down these outward spiraling stairs, you know, like the ones that take you to the outside yeah. to send up a brick. And he was taking ladies on his back one by one to the roof. When he got up to the roof to do the hoisting, you know, that like uh, rubber coating that they spray on the top of a lot yep. of the roofs. Yeah. Well, there must have been a big rip in one side because why the helicopter and he was getting ready to hoist a guy Why the helicopter moved over the roof. He's in the center of this holding on to a lady and the air goes underneath and the whole roof balloons up while he's standing on top of it. Holy cow. What? Yeah. Almost throwing them off the building. When that happened, he has the wherewithal to draw his SAR knife and he cut a hole in it rapidly and they descended back down onto the roof until he could turn around and get that out. But that was, uh, you know, to me, I'm like, whew, that's, that's a real dicey one right there. All right. We, we need that guy on here too. What's his name? Jim Swanson. Jim Swanson. Let's go, Jim. We need, we yes. need this story too. Let's go. <laughs> Holy cow. Um, so that, that's, that's pretty much it for what I got for Katrina. Well, Katrina was amazing for you. Uh, well done yeah. to you and your crews, you know, and to make this even, uh, even cooler is two weeks later. Yeah. Like 24 September, 2005, you get, yeah. you guys get launched out to, uh, Rita and yeah. Here it is. We we you earned yourself an air medal there, and I get to read this one too, which is great. So, yes. Commander Second Fleet, the President of the United States, takes pleasure in presenting the Air Medal with Bronze Star for first award to Aviation Warfare Systems Operator Chief Kenneth L. Smith, United States Navy, for service set forth in the following citation for meritorious achievement in aerial flight as air crewman of an SH-60 Bravo helicopter while attached to helicopter anti-submarine squadron Light 46 during joint search and rescue operations for Hurricane Rita victims on 24 September 2005. Chief Smith skillfully assessed in directing his aircraft using his portable global positioning system at low altitude through perilous turbulence and periods of heavy rain with malfunctioning stabilization augmentation augmentation system while searching for storm victims in the southeastern Louisiana. Launching from Naval Air Station New Orleans to search area with no available assistance from aircraft control agencies or information about fuel on station, he expertly cleared the pilot to avoid numerous power lines, guide wires, and damaged buildings. Spotting civilians in distress near Fort Island, he directed a confined landing to a small patch of grass between trees and power lines in wind gusts up to 65 knots. Disembarking the aircraft, he learned of a family stranded in their home by the floodwaters. Departing over power lines, he proceeded to the residence where another confined landing was required to rescue the family of three. After embarking the survivors with the aircraft light on the wheels over the wet ground, he evacuated them to safety of the original landing zone, reunited them with their relatives. 
Chief Smith's overall contribution to Joint Task Force Rita included 14 hours of flight, three rescues, and 100 pounds of cargo delivered. By his skillful airmanship, steadfast aggressiveness, and exemplary devotion to duty, in face of hazardous flying condition, Chief Smith reflected great credit upon himself and upheld the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. God, I love these write-ups. Come on. Let's go, kid. <laughs> it, it, it's a long run-on sentence, isn't it? It, uh, it totally is. But you know what? It's it's awesome because it, it, it gives a little highlight of what everything goes on. And man, that is awesome. So literally, Katrina's over. Everybody's done. You debrief and boom, two weeks later, launched out for Rita. Go. Yeah. So what was kind of cool about Rita is, uh, you know, well, first off, I didn't like that we went on to the Gator, you know, so it, it kind of killed our crew day some. But one thing that we did that was really neat was uh, we launched on the backside of the storm as the storm was moving through. We were, we were moving in as it was moving off. So we were actually flying in 65, 70 knot winds coming in on the backside of the storm. Wow. And I can remember looking over at the other aircraft that had one of my good friends in it, Christopher Kasperzik. And, you know, he wasn't with me at Katrina, but, you know, we were flying in and I could see him in the other aircraft as we were flying in. It was pretty, pretty amazing situation. Um, the devastation there was you know it was completely different and you know i'll go ahead and say that it was different in the aspect of when if you were to look at western louisiana eastern texas where rita hit further to the west there were some coastal coastal areas where like the houses were just gone they were swept off their foundations um luckily it didn't hit right at katrina because I think had it hit that same exact area and caused more levee damage, I, I don't think New Orleans could have taken it. But it hit further to the west. Uh, you know, bouncing, bouncing back to awards a little bit, you know, I'd like, you know, I only want to say this because I, I think awards and how they go out, you know, it, it's never equitable. Uh, in our wing, uh, we were able to have this discussions with, all the leadership in our in our wing and you know get all the COs in one room and you know we were like look if anybody's flying in this environment it, it's not a normal environment if they're flying in this environment and they conducted rescues they deserve an air medal and our wing did that you know so great for our guys uh occasionally there were some that met the wicket and, you know, it's, it's always a challenge when you're dealing with awards, especially when you deal with awards and egos. So, right. you know, you, you've got awards, you've got egos. And, you know, I even heard a commanding officer say, I can't believe these guys are going to get an award that's higher than any that I have. So <laughs> that, that wasn't, yeah, that was not my commanding officer, I'm happy to say. But in this, in the award piece, that is one of the things that's viewed. Now, the reason I raise this is the East Coast lamps, you know, all of our guys got air medals um, as, as they deserve it. On the West Coast, they decided they were going to give out NAMs. So, you know, I, I would just like to highlight, it's not that East Coast guys did anything more. It, it's just we weren't underneath the, all underneath the same umbrella. Right. And when it weighs out, it, it's difficult. 
um, our, our Commodore, I, I think, was very smart when it came to the Navy Marine Corps. Um, I think there were eight write-ups that were up for it. And wow. what our Commodore did was he assembled a board of people around the base. He went and got officers from different places. They read the award manual, and then they read the write-up, and he had these impartial people that were able to say, this meets this wicket, or it doesn't meet this wicket. And that way, I, I think in the end, I think the four that were approved were the only four that he pushed through based off of the recommendations of the board that he convened prior to sending these off to the awards board which I think, you know, our Commodore is very wise in doing that. Yeah, man, that's, well, and, and you know, I, I've said it before, I'll say it again. We don't do this for awards. It's just no. nice to have the recognition for when you go above and beyond the abnormal rescue, the abnormal situation. It's like, oh, well, thank you. I appreciate you guys realizing that, you know, we're, we're going out for something a little ab obscure. So. They, they seem important when you're in, sometimes for advancement, but the reality is I couldn't even tell you where mine are now. Yeah. I, uh, like most of us, no in a box in the garage or in the yeah. attic. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, yeah. that that was the old me. It was a long time ago. You know, I, I always tried to do what was right. I'm sure I got a lot of it wrong, but, uh, you know, you have the wisdom, you know, you gain wisdom as you get older and you see things through a different perspective lens. Totally. Totally. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> that's funny. Well, yeah. I, it, for Rita, is there anything else that uh, you got on Rita? Or? No, I, I would say that, you know, after Katrina, Rita was really pretty. Um, well, it, it just, it would have been amazing standing on its own two weeks after Katrina. It didn't really seem like too much. Yeah. Uh, it's like when you go to the amusement park and you ride the hardest badass roller coaster in the entire yeah. park and then everything else is like, ah, that's all right. Even though yeah. they're amazing. <laughs> then you're in the spinning teacups going. Yeah. 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 Oh. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Well, so, I, you know what, again, good job for you and your crews, even into Rita. I know you guys were, you know, when you're, when you're pulled into one crazy event and then two weeks later, you don't even have time to really debrief and reset and you're thrown into the next one. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's go time. So props. Well Absolutely. done. Yeah. So, um, so post my military career, uh, I got a, I started working for the department of defense as a weapons and tactics instructor, uh, which helps I, I since you were a weapons and tactics instructor over in Japan. Well done. Yeah. 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 Nice. So, so I've been doing weapons and tactics thing since I got out working for a company for the Department of Defense. And then a few years ago, I got a call from a good friend of mine and he uh, asked me if I wanted to go do some security uh, during disasters. So um, it, it was kind of a very strange scenario. And I'll go ahead and say initially I was like, nah. Then he said, how much for? And I was like, all right, I'm in. <laughs> well done so, so we uh i took leave from my regular job and i went to do this and we went to north carolina and it was severe flooding um and literally within i would say 20 minutes a small group of people that i was with had morphed the mission of the company that we were hired by 
Uh, we were supposed to just guard generators and fuel trucks. And it rapidly turned into, can you locate uh, teammates and locate patients for a particular company? Wow. And, uh, yeah, so we were going to houses, searching houses. We were driving. We actually turned to uh, utilizing our four-wheel drive vehicles. And we would have one vehicle and we'd have a chase vehicle. And when the front vehicle's rear bumper touched the water, it was the chase vehicle's job to tell them they had to turn around trying to get through floodwaters to different areas. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, so it was, it was pretty, pretty extreme. Uh, year following that, we stood up Cerberus Dynamic Solutions because we saw all the things that were uh, being done by that other company that either we were pretty sure they didn't have the correct insurance policies and uh, we, we realized that we, we had a lot of skills that translated into that. Very cool. Um, so that's who you're working with now? That's, yes, that's, that's our company, Cerberus Dynamic Solutions. Uh, I have a partner, Joseph Sabia, and uh, we primarily focus on just disaster relief, um, getting in there and doing high risk stuff during disasters. Wow, nice. It's amazing. Like, and you saw it firsthand from Katrina too, is like the need for that. So, yeah. Well, what, what it really stood out to me was when you got in that environment and you're looking around at the people who are local to there, they're all dealing with the worst day of their, their life. Um, and when you've been used to working in that type of environment, but you're not affected by it, you're coming in to do a job it makes it relatively easy for you to perform at a high level because your house isn't destroyed because, right. you know, you didn't just lose your job. So our ability to operate in that environment and the people that I had access to um, really lent the things going very well. Um, I, I'll go ahead and say, you know, we just hire uh, during disasters. We hire former rescue swimmers, former Rangers, SEALs, Green Berets. You know, we just have a, a large swath of highly skilled individuals. And, and what I like to really say about the people that we brought in is um, I know I can put them somewhere and whether they can communicate with us or not, they will make the right decision because of who we hire. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Cut, cut from a different cloth. That's awesome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but that's pretty much what I've had going post, post that event. Man. Awesome. Ken. Jeez. Now, I have taken so much of your time. This is crazy. Uh, yeah. Uh, man, I, I, I think I've said probably enough, maybe even too much. But, uh, <laughs> it's all good. You know, I'm just glad that we got people out there today that are, you know, able to pick up the torch and carry it forward. You know, when us old guys get to be too old to do the job or, you know, we're no longer in that position. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, me too. I, I, I hope to keep going as long as I possibly, as my body will allow me to go. That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Ken, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on and just listening to your entire career and running into Katrina and Rita, man, what a way to finish this off. Um, thank you. And with what you're doing now, keep going. It's, it's amazing. So well done. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll be in touch with you uh, at one point or another. We'll go grab a beer together. That's what I'm talking about. Sounds good. Sounds awesome. good. Anytime you're You got it, man. Awesome. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here.
go. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and hit that share button. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else we talk about here, send an email to jason at therealrescue.com. That's jason at T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q.com. You can also check us out on our web pages, therealrescue.com, our Facebook page, and our Instagram page, at The Real Rescue. Again, a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember, when that star alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard.